It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hey everybody, Patrick Connor here, and welcome to the Knuckles and Gloves podcast. More boxing history. I mean, what else are you going to expect at this point? I'm here with my boy, Bryn Jonathan Butler, author, filmmaker, all-around good dude, and we got early 90s boxing to talk about, dude. Man, it's going to be a good episode. There's a lot of, like, we've talked about a number of fights already, like, uh, that kind of, the spectrum goes wide. There's It's a wide net with a lot of crazy funny shit so it's gonna happen again today but first how are you man how you been i've been good this this was a fun one to go back to and just watch it back to back and just soak in the time period because if if this had gone a different way if the scheduling had gone different if just there's so many what ifs about how the heavyweight division would have been shifted had just a couple of things gone another way um, it's just such a bizarre fight and it's such a bizarre period in Tyson's life because this is, this is the bridge between the two Tysons. Uh, you know, the guy who should have been Tiger Woods in terms of being the first athlete to be a billionaire, this is where it starts to get derailed. This is right before the rape trial, right around Buster Douglas. Actually, the first Ruddock fight was supposed to happen before the, the, the Douglas fight. Uh, the Douglas fight was a substitute after there was a, a rib inflammation injury with Tyson going into that. So I just find it this liminal fight in Tyson's career in a way that is still so intriguing to watch him back then and just think you're going to be here for another 15 years <laughs> and it's not going to go so well. It's going to be lucrative, but you're going to lose everything and you can just feel who he was changing. If you're old enough to remember what he was before, where Tyson was a tremendous pitch man for the most conservative companies in America for a time. He's he's there for kids in, in Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. He's marketed by uh, Kodak Film, Diet Pepsi. Um, he, he's probably the most famous person in the world. And suddenly it's that, you didn't, it's like a comet instead of you thinking you were at the beginning of something, sort of like Michael Jackson with Thriller, is you think, wow, we're at the ground floor of a career that's going to be better than the Beatles. Actually, you're already at the peak. And that's Tyson with Spinks, which is only like a year and a half or something before we get to this. So that, that's a lot of what makes it so rich and, and special for me. And sad, too. Well, and, and uh, a lot of what people remember if we're going with the comet analogy is that part where it's burning out you know what i mean like it it was bright and now it's starting to fade but you still remember that brightness and so what a lot of people kind of remember about tyson and what a lot of people you know a lot of that memory and nostalgia that they have about mike tyson uh especially from people around our age 
most of them weren't quite old enough to really remember the 80s fights they remember the 90s shit you know the the later mike tyson and the aura he still had but you know where if we're talking about the donovan ruddock fights today they're pretty fun and they're definitely i would say overall in uh in mike tyson's career they're remembered fairly fondly as action fights and fights where overall i would say mike tyson showed you know a decent amount of metal m-e-t-t-l-e that is of course uh for anybody who was like what the fuck is he talking about um more than you might expect especially now that we know what mike tyson had become um but like you said, I think it's really interesting, especially watching the both both fights back to back. It re you really literally can see the versions of Mike Tyson going through both of those fights, because in the very first fight it starts out and you're like, it's him. That's the old yeah. guy. He's throwing combinations. He's fucking moving. He's get creating angles. You know, he's throwing that fucking hook uppercut combination and shit. It's like, damn, this fool is fucking going off. But then he starts to fade when Ruddick, you know, pushes back and, and you know, and it's that's it. That's what is so interesting about these two fights, you know, is that you really get to see that evolution. And and I think the other thing, if, if anybody is going to go out and watch these after just to refresh is listen to the announcers in both of these fights, the way that they are reframing their idea of who Mike Tyson is. Is this Mike Tyson? Is this where he's headed? Is he this hittable? Did we overestimate him? There's, it's almost like the fight is gaslighting the perceptions of not just the announcers, but also the audience a little bit in really interesting ways is sort of this constant question. Remind me of Lawrence of Arabia, where Lawrence of Arabia is asking the same question for three and a half hours. Who am I? And it never answers it. It goes to these tremendous lengths to not answer the only question it's really asking. And that's something I think that is why Tyson has remained, remained so marketable, is you think he's one of the most available people that like American culture has ever given us, and yet he's very opaque. And I, I found just listening to the announcers sort of constantly being incredulous about what's happening here, who is this guy, is a really interesting layer to what this fight is, because you have to know where Tyson came from on the way up. And a lot of people thought all of that was hype. Who did he fight? Like the same way we dismissed Deontay Wilder or lo lots of other people, even Tyson Fury. It's like, who is he really beaten to be called? Like for people to seriously say, is he the greatest heavyweight ever? How does he have a resume to say that? Tyson faced all of those same things as he was on his way up. And then suddenly it was like, you were embarrassed to be, how good is he? Because what he did to Spinks, he was not supposed to do, according to a lot of experts. Even Teddy Atlas is like, no, he's going to lose that fight. Um, a, a lot of experts predicted he was going to have problems there. And it was so easy that you're like, did Ali ever do that to somebody? Okay, Foreman. But it was, it, it was, he was just always fucking with us in terms of what our expectations were, which is why I bring up the Michael Jackson thing is after Thriller, it's like it's the biggest thing ever, but he's only 24. Where is this guy going to go creatively, commercially? Well, he's never going to go anywhere near to where he went there. It's just we couldn't kind of accept it, and we're still kind of holding on to it. And, and so that, you know, with this fight, I mean, just looking at four fights leading up to and after these two 
with both of these guys was a really interesting exercise because, as we mentioned, the first fight with Ruddick in March um, of 1991, March 18th, this was a substitute. Uh, sorry, like we were supposed to have him fight Douglas. I mean, we, he ended up fighting Douglas. But what if Ruddick had done to him what Douglas did? What if Ruddick became Douglas in the culture, which he easily could have, right? I mean, did, did you kind of think of it in those terms when you found out that this was like a substitute fight? Or sorry, that Douglas was the substitute fight for the original Ruddick fight? Well, I actually, when I was looking it up, I saw that it had been canceled, but I couldn't figure out why. Like, so it must have been, you know, a story that came a couple days later or something like that, because I couldn't initially figure out why it had been canceled, just that it had been canceled. And I was like, oh, that's that's kind of weird, because it seemed like, you know, the popular story or I guess what the hindsight being 2020 story about Mike Tyson at this time is that we now know that he was fucking around a lot in training. Uh, I mean, literally and figuratively, he yeah. was basically not dedicated, uh, you know, looking at the psychology of it, obviously unsure of himself and had a lot of self-doubt and a lot of conflicting, you know, cognitive shit going on. But at the same time, had to put up the persona of being the tough guy, fucking crazy maniac who could fuck anybody up and was the heavyweight champion, baddest man on the planet, which in and of itself is an interesting psychological study, as we know, because there's been a lot of fucking words dedicated to it. But that being said, you know, uh, it's it's a really interesting time for Mike Tyson and his decline and the way that it happened and whatnot and the kind of, you know, we talked about this earlier, the decadence of that kind of, uh, you know, the that comes before the fall. And so, um, yeah, it would have been interesting to see whether or not Donovan Ruddick could have stepped into that role at that time, because it seems as though, especially, like I said, given the narrative that that is what was ripe to happen, you know, that that was what was being set up to happen more or less, you know, that Tyson was, you know, anybody could have done it or something like that, that it wasn't necessarily that, that Buster Douglas was this special person. Obviously he had special motivation and rose to the occasion on that night, but the popular perception I think in hindsight is that anybody could have filled that role. But the interesting thing about Razor Ruddick it, during this time too and I would say that if anybody's going to go back and if, I mean, if you're really dedicated and you want to get like a, you know, a serious blow by blow feel for what was going on in the promotion of both of these fights, go to YouTube and look it up because there are literally like one, two, two and a half hour pre and post fight shows about both fights. Like there's probably like 15 hours of shit that you could go through. I didn't go through it all because it was too much, but I went through a bunch. And it was really interesting, dude. Like for for one thing, one thing that that struck me, and I mean, I'm not, I'm not one of the people who tries to say that uh, discussion about boxing or combat sports needs to be sanitized. But at the same time, I noticed that there was like so much talk about death in the pre-fight. They were like, "I'm gonna fucking kill him. I'm gonna bury him. I'm gonna decapitate him. I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna." fucking take out his gun. I'm going to do this. I'm going to cut off his head. Like there's like all sorts of shit now where like you brought up Deontay Wilder says, I want a body. And people are like, why did he just say the thing? It's like, whoa. So obviously 
pre-fight promotion and fight promotion has changed and the perception and the kind of zeitgeist or whatever well, has and changed. Tyson's like, and Tyson's like prison talk. I want to make you my girlfriend became one of the big quotes. I want to kiss those big lips of yeah. you. Like Tyson's homoerotic yeah, prison rapey taunts. And, and again, like this is right before the Desiree <laughs> Washington thing. Like that's the other thing is just what's around the corner for Tyson and what this portends for his career and his demeanor and stuff and, and his image. I mean, Tyson was somebody who told me, I remember like the first time I interviewed him that he dreamed of losing before every fight. This was a hugely insecure person. I mean, monumental. I mean, to put it in perspective, if, if you, if you meet Tyson, one of the interesting things about him is he's simultaneously the most arrogant and insecure person I've ever met in my life. That's, that's what he encompasses both extremes. He, he thinks he's sort of like a reincarnated King and he also believes he has no right to be alive. That's kind of his energy. Like that's his, where where he's at as you're talking to him. It's I've never been around anybody like it. And he's extremely good at reading you. He he will find out like where you. Yeah, live he knows emotionally. why you're there. Yeah, I mean because he feels so vulnerable, he's extremely effective at making you feel just as vulnerable about the things that you care about. And and I think like. You know, he had a really stormy summer in 1988. He marries Robin Givens. So as you were saying, his personal life is just blown to hell. The whole group that he had around him, the kind of scaffolding from the beginning of his career in the Catskills is all gone by the time we get to Ruddick. I mean, if you look at these, I mean, and you also think about all the death, death, death. Um, Ruddick had really made a lot of his reputation as a puncher with the Michael Dokes fight that happened in April of 1990. So only a year before, and he he it, it's almost on par for me with um, I guess that Tommy Morrison knockout from Ray Mercer. It's so brutal, it's, dude. And Arthur Mercanti so should just brutal. be like ashamed of himself for that, like forever, yeah. dude. Oh my God, it's, and he's still it's it's, still refereeing for Christ's sake. <laughs> yeah, I mean it it it's baseball bat to the head three times it might maybe four but i think it was at least three of, of just that slumped in the corner punch. like like defenseless just sitting there and he just steps like you can see the wind up he just bam, oh, you he, know it's like oh yeah. my god and tyson said that ruddock was the hardest puncher he ever faced and and again they used it in the promo when you're watching the fight and you're seeing the lead-ins to this fight tyson saying he almost killed michael dokes and you're like, oh wow, like I need to sign Great. up for this pay-per-view. Woo! I can watch somebody get killed. So, you know, Michael Dokes, somebody named Camille Odom after that, Michael Rouse, and then this Tyson fight. And after the two Tyson fights, he fights Greg Page, who was a consistent sparring partner for Tyson, also dropped Tyson in the lead up to to Buster Douglas. Yeah, a very underachieving um, heavyweight, a good fighter, but just you know, never got yeah. where he was supposed to. Uh, Phil Jackson after that. So to go after a Hall of Fame basketball coach, you know, like a 10-time champion in Phil Jackson, that's a strange move for Razor Ruddick. No, it's it a different a Laker, Phil Jackson. <laughs> and then Lennox Lewis, where he gets fucking destroyed. Um, Tyson, on the other hand, <coughs> the lead into this fight is Henry Tillman, who beat him at the Olympic trials to keep him out of the Olympics. 
and just fucking annihilates Henry Tillman. Tillman looks so terrified in that fight. Same thing with Alex Stewart. It's another brutal knockout. But you can feel something is changing with Tyson. Like when you're watching him in those fights, the way he's coming at his opponent, it is now this intimidating, the image is taking over for the substance of who he is in a way that's not true. Like when you watch him fighting Spinks, even the way he's moving in that fight, he's still an extraordinarily responsible defensive fighter. He's still very comfortable adapting and being fluid with his style, with his stance and everything. Um, That changes with Tillman and Stewart. Watch those two fights. And it also changes with Ruddick. He is a much more conventional prosaic fighter against Ruddick than he ever was before. And maybe Ruddick deserves some of that credit because of how, like his size, his power, what he represented. But Tyson has never been more available than he was in these fights with Ruddick. I mean, it's, it's really other, other than with Buster Douglas, where he took a savage beating. But I mean, again, with that, I mean, everybody around Tyson said that he didn't train for that fight. He was grossly overweight um, had to do a crash diet, I think, to lose 50 pounds for the Douglas fight. So this is clearly not a disciplined guy. This is not a kind of LeBron James right. or Michael Jordan dialed in. And just stating what's going on, of course, is not making excuses for Tyson. You know what I'm saying? Like, just so no. anybody goes, oh, you're making excuses that he was overweight. No, I'm just saying he was overweight. I mean, we didn't do and it. I we am, didn't eat I, for him. <laughs> and I am criticizing him for it. I mean, if you right. if you're going to go on and on that you're the greatest heavyweight ever and you're the greatest fighter ever, you just stay what disciplined, are you doing? baby. Stay disciplined. And he and not only was he not that disciplined, I mean, he was hugely undisciplined. He surrounds himself with really incompetent people that that are you know later on he calls them leeches and everything, but he he really never misses an opportunity to self sabotage. That's a big thing about Tyson is. How worthy right. did he feel to be in the position he he was in? The he imposter was, syndrome is through the roof. Yeah, he was spouting self-fulfilling prophecies from a young age. You know, he's basically saying, I'm going to fail. I'm destined to, you know, and then manifesting that by, you know, making yourself fail. Um, you know, and it's it's a fucking tale as old as time. And it, it's funny, too, because you talk about, like, uh, the, the potential that it could have been that Ruddick was dangerous or large or whatever. And it's funny because during one of those pre-fight segments, they dedicated like a half hour show to why would Mike Tyson take this fight? It doesn't make sense that he would take this fight. Like they're literally going like, I, why would he do this? This is the most dangerous puncher since blah, blah. I, I, they mentioned somebody. I don't remember who it was, but they mentioned somebody like the most dangerous puncher since blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, wow, they're really hype. They're really pumping up the rhetoric on this. But uh, clearly, somebody felt that there was a lot of doubt, and it was kind of a cool snapshot, actually, because one of the segments had a bunch of uh, media figures, Phil Berger, Earl Gusky, Michael Marley, who you know passed away uh, about a year, uh, maybe a year or so ago. Um, you know, And I thought it was kind of cool to get that snapshot because a number of names I haven't read about in a long time. But there seemed to be a fair bit of doubt in Tyson. And then when they had pivoted in some of these segments to Holyfield, because they brought Evander Holyfield in, because at this point he had assumed the, you know, the heavyweight mantle. And so they're asking him, like, you know, even then at this point, Tyson and Holyfield were supposed to fight. And, you know, they're going through the motions and all this shit. We already know at this point that they've had at least one 
uh, canceled fight. But what people don't know is that they were scheduled to fight a handful of times and it just wound up going through each time for a variety of reasons. And then later on, uh, ultimately the rape trial kind of squashed it for a while. But point being, they brought Evander Holyfield in on these segments and they're like, you know, what do you think? Blah, blah, blah. And pretty much Evander Holyfield was just like, you know, I'm the, I'm the best heavyweight. And both of these guys are pretty much just competing for number two. Like it's, there's, this is not like the fight. To, and, and he was pretty much like, I'm, I'm not afraid of Mike Tyson and I'm going to beat him up if they put him in here. And that's exactly what happened. But uh, it's funny too, just a lot of the figures that we're bringing in for the pre-fight stuff was really interesting. However, um, getting to the fight though, that first fight, a lot of people, like I had told you kind of before we started taping, I remember a lot of people at the time and kind of the years, you know, uh, afterwards saying that it was such a great fight. It was a close fight. And then people saying that it, it was in the contendership for fight of the year for that year, which I kind of disagree yeah. personally, but anyway, it was a good fight though. And what you had said earlier too, about the way Tyson looked and kind of what I touched on too, he looked good early on, man. He looked really good. I thought. Yeah. I mean, he, I think he, he kicked his ass into shape for, for the fight. I mean, his weight was down. Um, I mean, fuck, like even like looking at these dates, like, the first Ruddock fight was supposed to happen November 18th, 1989. And Douglas happens February. It's like three months away. Jeez, so you just think how, how things could have changed. Yeah, I mean, the other thing is that Tyson feels like he's been on the map for, for 25 years at this point, And he's only 24. I mean, they're both, they're both 24, I believe. Tyson's 39 and one with 35 knockouts. Ruddock's 25 and one. I think he had, he lost to, I think David Jacko or something like way, way back, a, a former Tyson opponent as well. And, and that yeah, was I, the, I a... the issue that he had, the, uh, the disease or whatever that he was diagnosed with. They said that that was, they said that that was the contributing factor. He got stopped in the corner. Huh. Interesting. Um, I had that Tyson looked really energetic when he came out, but he looked sloppy. His timing is not there. I think he was able to get his weight down, but it's not the way, like you, even that you mentioned Evander Holyfield. Holyfield said when he first met Tyson that Tyson was the only person he ever saw who worked harder than he did. That's a key point, is that that's who Tyson was at the beginning. Not only was he that gifted, but he was working harder than a maniac like, like Evan Fields. And and who Tyson becomes here, where the weight is just jumping around huge amounts, he's drinking, he's drugging, he's fucking, he's whoring, pretty soon he's raping, um, he is really, really out there, really destabilized, um, he's giving really cryptic interviews all the time, as you're saying, about just how he's going to destroy himself and that sort of thing, but there's a glimpse at the beginning of, of he's energetic and if you compare the way, just if you just watched his feet with Spinks, that's how you can tell the difference. The way that he's bouncy against Spinks, he's barely touching the canvas as he's moving around. Compared to this is a much heavier version of Tyson, even though he's physically lighter in terms of his weight. Um, but he's not developing any longer. You're not seeing anything new. And there was a long period where Tyson was developing with every fight. Even though he's knocking people out so early, there, there was still a real sense of wanting to get better. Um, and the other thing that's interesting about the first round is just watching Tyson react to somebody who has the power to knock him out. 
Um, there, there are some uppercuts that Ruddick is throwing. Ruddick is more of a one-arm fighter than probably Joe Frazier, even. Like, Ruddick does not throw a right hand ever. It's amazing how little he utilizes it. But his left is so powerful as a hook, as a smash, as an uppercut. Um, so Tyson's the aggressor, but he's no longer a, an aggressive counterpuncher. Now he's a puncher. That's another thing that's changed with Tyson here. He is not a pressure counterpuncher. And it, and it shows because he's getting hit all the time because he doesn't have the discipline to react to an aggressor and, and create, create sort of openings and angles and that sort of thing. Instead, he's trying to throw home runs and largely missing. He's missing a lot, which is why I say he looks sloppy. His infighting is almost non-existent, whereas in the past, he used to be devastating. And he's far less willing to throw combinations, which the announcers are pointing out all the time. He is really trying to pot shot with home runs. And actually what I noticed too, which I agree with you, was that even with uh, Tyson not opening up as he had previously or as a more you know better version of him had, uh, Ruddock was relegated even in the first round to throwing, you know, single left hands, which Tyson was clearly wary of, but wise to, and was mostly avoiding already and was trying to counter the left hand with a right hand and succeeded a few times. It was just that it wasn't, he didn't manage to land it real hard, but it was, I thought it was kind of funny just because Tyson was often more of a, a hooking type because of his movement. Um, that he was trying to land a right hand. He was trying to counter with a long right hand in the first round, which I thought was interesting. It didn't last super long. But um, but another thing that was happening was Ruddick was throwing so hard that like four separate times he turned himself around, you know, throwing and missing. Yeah. And it's like, you know, that kind of thing is also eye-catching in terms of obviously he's throwing with power, but it made him look, you know, not very good either. They both looked sloppy. They both looked like their timing was off. Like there was, you know, like they were both wary of each other. And another thing was that Ruddick was warned in the first round by Richard Steele because he started using his, uh, his front arm to drape around Tyson's neck. And what he kept doing was pulling him in and then trying to go like that. And he was yeah. he, like, but it was in a way where it was like not sly whatsoever. It was not tricky and it was super obvious. And Tyson was kind of not only wise to it, but very early on looked like he was getting kind of pissed that he, that Ruddick was doing it. So it was a, it was a kind of a sloppy fight. Uh, it relieves, it had the makings of a sloppy fight in the, in the first round, unfortunately. Who did you score yeah, that for, I, by the way? I gave it to Tyson. I mean, yeah, close, I but, I, but I give it to Tyson. Yeah. Um, and I remembered it being closer at the time also, like, I remember this being like a close fight in my mind, but watching it, it really wasn't. I thought, I thought both fights Tyson pretty convincingly won most rounds, but, but I mean, you know, it, it, it it's just such a, I kept trying to think where is Tyson coming from at this time in his own mind? Like, what is he thinking about in his career about like where I'm going to go? Like he's, he's putting the Douglas thing in the rear view, but does he really think that he can be like as good as he was, or could he be better? He's only 24, but it, I got the sense that he is kind of giving up on boxing beyond as a paycheck. He's just, I don't feel his passion when I'm watching him in this. He's, he's gutsy as hell because this is a tough fight for him. The next fight is really tough, 
I mean, he's going to end up having a perforated. It seems like he's more annoyed with Ruddick, and that's what's driving him than you know really wanting to win or like he just seems like he's a he's pissed off at Ruddick or something. That's what it seemed like to me anyway. No, he does. I, I, I you really feel like he does not like him, and and he does not like getting hit. I mean, it was it was an event for Tyson to get hit. Really, prior to Douglas. You just didn't see it. Or I guess like the first Frank Bruno fight, he took a real shot there. But prior to that, <laughs> as much as we remember these great knockouts, it was his defense that was so extraordinary. He never got hit cleanly. His, he was so evasive and his footwork was so exceptional. But here he's just completely available to get teed off on. I mean, he, he's got a tremendous chin. That's what this fight showed me, as did Douglas. He can take a shot. Yeah, and I mean, he that's takes what I was saying is that he, he kind of proved his medal more than I had realized because he took a handful of shots where I was like, ooh, you know, like, whoa. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, the other thing that he opens up in this is, is you were mentioning before about Tyson being really famous as a left hooker. But in this, the, he still has the tremendous hand speed of his right hand, like his right hand lead. Jesus. And the second round, he opens up with a, like a lot of wild right hands that he's throwing and they're often the ones that are lifting are very sweeping they're not they're not the straight like really just getting from point a to point b as quickly as possible um he really is favoring that and a kind of sweeping hook for ruddick to get to get him in position for the right hand and tyson is really dirty in both of these fights you see that as early as the second round he's hitting on the break and seeming just kind of delight in fighting that way. Um, Tyson gets a, a warning, I think, for two fouls at this point um, in the second round. And um, and he just keeps jumping in with one shot. But he also deserves a lot of credit for his body attack. His body attack is vicious <laughs> consistently in both these I, fights. And I think that I also made that him. note. Yep. Yeah. Um. I think I think if he was not as reliant on the body attack, Ruddick would have been a very different fighter in this first fight. I think Tyson was really there to, to lose in both of these fights, but he had just enough and he was in just enough condition and he was mentally tough enough to really want to hang in there. But this is not the guy who he was before, like before Douglas, really, really before losing Kevin Rooney and that that whole nucleus of people this is this is a different guy and and he's running on a different kind of fuel than he was before that's what that's what it kind of felt it felt like a car that's running on fuel it's not designed to run on a little bit he seems like he's a little bit more uh he's a little bit more willing to dip dip into the the dark arts you know what i'm saying he's he's not he's not executing with his feet as much and he's more relying on the upper body movement than also putting the feet into the equation as well a lot more flat-footed like you said but then he got he gets warned in round two for a low a low shot and he's actually doing a real good job he starts shielding from the ref and landing low punch i mean he's he's doing a good job i gotta give him credit he's got some bernard hopkins in him in that way and then uh you know he also gets warned for using his shoulder later in the round because ruddick like i said he keeps grabbing him around the head and again like Richard Steele should have been more proactive about it, dude. One thing I really just truly, really hate in boxing, like across the board, I really don't care who's doing it, is incessant holding and clinching, like as a tactic. 
I fucking can't stand it. And that was something that Ruddick was starting to really do in round two. And Tyson was getting pissed. And at one point toward the end of the end of the round, like maybe in the last minute or so, he just goes, you know, gives him a, a shoulder butt right in the face. And it doesn't really do anything. But Richard Steele saw it and was like, hey, nah. But um, also another thing that happened during round two was Ruddick went down. And for whatever reason, one of Ruddick's like signature ways of getting knocked down it happened in like four separate fights it happened against tommy morrison happened against lennox lewis where he got knocked down before he got knocked out uh and it happened here i think it happened in another fight too but he gets not and it's like his feet just go like out from under him like they don't he doesn't like flatten or he just goes like blue and his legs just like sweep out from under him or something. And he did that again uh, against Tyson here. The punch didn't even land that, that clean, but it was a knockdown because the punch did land and his feet just whoop, slipped out. Yeah. So he got a knockdown. And I think that that was also a bit of a motivating factor for Tyson to be like, all right, you know, I can, I smell blood and I know that I can get this guy down. He might hit hard. He might be tough, but I can get him down. And so that also might have been a little bit of a, a motivation for him going into the third. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, it seemed like pretty clear 10-8 round for Tyson, that one. Um, yeah, third round is really interesting. Tyson still has huge intensity and explosiveness. But as I mentioned before, the, the fluidity of the ways that he reacts to Ruddick is where you see the big change in, in who he was before, who he is now, and who he's going to become, is that he still has head movement. <laughs> But he has great difficulty transitioning defense into offense now, whereas that used to be one of his great assets. I think it's underappreciated. I think it's it's the clear way to see what made him so exceptional before is he's not just he's, he's not just exercising defensive responsibility, but he's transitioning it into his stellar offense and and his counterpunch knockouts more than trying to lead as a puncher. And I just think they were so explosive that we missed like the scaffolding that created it. And that's, that's now gone. Now, now he's a lot more basic as a fighter. You're still getting the good defense. You are no longer getting the transitions. And we know that like when fighters get old, the first thing they lose is foot speed. And this is not Tyson old, but this is Tyson not as disciplined in doing all of those drills that I think Evander Holyfield was watching and just saying, that guy's working harder than I am. That guy's still trying to develop. That guy has people around him that are really trying to be creative and building him to get stronger and stronger and better and more precise um, as a fighter. I think now it's just, I'm a really strong, fast guy. And, and if I hit you, you're going to fall kind of thing. Like, I think he's, he's just a lot more basic. Um, and, and as you mentioned, Ruddick is starting to look lethargic. And he is resorting to even more holding. And also he's taking some massive body shots from Tyson. Yeah. Tyson's still yeah. throwing bombs. Yep. Um, and there's a little spurt by Razor ahead of, at the end of the round. And Tyson counters with a hook that, that, that drops him. Yeah, I mean, that happened again in the third round, right? Like, I mean, yep. it, so, it was just as Ruddick thought he was doing something, just as he thought he was accomplishing something, boom, and he got knocked down. Right. <laughs> so, so again, it's like you, you, it reminded me a bit of, of like, if you watched Last Tango in Paris with Brando, this sounds weird, but one of the things that's interesting about that movie is you're going to see Brando at certain moments. I mean, I think he's 48 in it. 
but you're going to see moments of the beautiful Brando, who he was, and sort of on the waterfront, um, streetcar named Desire, just little glimpses of that beauty, and you're going to see who he's going to become in terms of yeah. Colonel Kurtz and a 400-pound guy. That, to me, is, is these fights with Ruddick for Tyson. You're going to see glimpses of the magnificence, and you're going to see where it's going to end up losing to Kevin McBride. Totally. Sort of sad, pathetic... Uh, blowing all his money oh god like who would want to be associated with that guy kind of guy versus who he was at the beginning where michael jordan looks like just a face in the crowd at spinks you don't even care about michael jordan because tyson is that much more important um so yeah that that was a little of this third round is you're still seeing some golden moments from tyson but they're they're wrapped in between this different guy who's showing up and is about to take Without the wheel question. and really take over. I will, I will briefly read the notes, some notes that I took for round three. Uh, let's see. Body work from Tyson again. Ruddick doing nothing inside. More body work from Tyson. Ruddick getting worn for holding. Misses punches after the warning. Good left hand from Tyson inside. Right hand follows up. Body work from Tyson as Ruddick holds. Jabs from Tyson. Ruddick all caps, holding, Christ, body work from Tyson, steel warning Ruddick, right hand from Tyson, Ruddick just holding, Ruddick lands a glancing shot, Ruddick holding, <laughs> it was just like, dude, in round three, I was starting to be like, man, I'm getting kind of mad, like, steel needs to start getting more stern about this holding, this is ridiculous, but I mean, you know, that you could also see that, uh, the bottom line is that um, we've talked about this all the time in contemporary fights, like we're talking about bad officiating or whatever. You can't rely on the referee to break you up. You can't rely on, on any officials to do what they're supposed to do. And I'm not saying you have to take the law into your own hands. I'm saying you have to be prepared for that being a thing and not imploding because that's part of being professional. And it sucks that you have to fucking eat that. But it is what it is. And you can see Tyson going, fuck this. I'm going extra judicious. And I'm, you know, I'm going to start like pushing him and I'm going to start shoving him. And like in several different rounds, they're punching after the bell. Like they're just, they would just won't, they're not even listening. They don't give a fuck. And so I think that that's like where you say that it starts to creep in here that Tyson is relying less on just being a fighter and more on kind of just going like, all right, I'm going to do whatever it takes to win now. Cause I'm starting to get kind of mad. Yeah. And that's, and that's a feeling of Tyson that feels different here is you used to feel him exhilarated to attack, exhilarated to keep going. He was, he looked, a lot of people pointed this out about his knockouts is he would take somebody's head off in a way you'd never seen before. And he didn't look satisfied. This Tyson looks desperate to get rid of the opposition. I need to get rid of it because I'm I'm really uncomfortable that something bad is going to happen to me if I don't get rid of this adversary. That's the energy that is a big difference from who he used to be. It's it's what made him so terrifying early on, is he he just looked giddy while he'd yeah. go out there and, and knock people down. He yeah, wanted like, an I need extra to get this pawn time. down to get to the bishop. But now that you're at the bishop, you're like, Jesus Christ. Can we get through this already? You know, like, yeah, yeah. So, fourth round, I have Razor is beginning to look very passive, totally one dimensional, and basically apathetic at this point. He he is trying to land a big hook, but 
often when he's throwing the hook, Tyson is timing it to land body shots that are definitely conditioning him. Don't throw this hook all that much. And he doesn't. Um, there's a late body shot <laughs> to end the round, which is quite dirty. Um, but I have Tyson up four zip at this yep. point. 100% agreed. Um, you could, I, I had almost the exact same notes. Ruddock is without question, uh, you know, not his offense is going down the tubes. He's not throwing very much. He's looking a little bit tired, huffing and puffing may or may not have something to do with the medical condition he was diagnosed with. I have no idea, but he also looked like that in several fights that went in rounds. He was, you know, he was a big gasper, no question. Um, yeah. And that's what he started to look like in the fourth round. Even if Tyson wasn't looking great, it was just that Ruddick was looking so anemic. Um, and, and like I said, they went after each other after the bell, there was a late body shot. And one thing I will say for Ruddick is that if Tyson showed a great chin, Ruddick showed some toughness himself because some of those body shots were like loud, brutal. And he, he never at any point was like, uh, or anything. He just, he just kept going. He didn't really fight back, but he kept going. So I, I have to give him credit for the toughness for sure. I, I totally agree. I mean, I think Ruddick, if you put Ruddick in today, I mean, how does a prime Ruddick do against Joshua? or fury or wilder i mean i don't know i i honestly don't know and i think a lot of the mythos built up around it, it might have been it might have been overblown a little bit and so it's kind of like you see this version where he's not throwing a lot of punches and i'm kind of just like i'm not i'm not certain that he beats an anthony joshua if he's going to go in there and throw that few punches i don't know but you also see when he lands that stuff, that, how that devastating is true. it is. And so it's a, it's a weird one because if you were just kind of like he got blown out of the water by all of the modern heavyweights, I'd be like, sure. If he knocked out all of them, I'd be like, it, it could happen. That, that smash he has is so devastating when he uses it. Now, and Tyson is a very different kind of opponent too. Just, you know, like a smaller, much faster heavy hitter, counter puncher um, is not these big, you know, Deontay Wilder being completely gassed after two rounds. Well, if Ruddick is still there, would Ruddick have a lot of problems with that version of Wilder? I don't know. Maybe, but, but maybe not. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, he's a very, he's a little bit of a, a conundrum wrapped in a mystery when it comes to that, you know, you don't know. I don't know what the potential was for sure, but um you know, getting into uh, round five. So Tyson's corner is telling him, stop looking for one punch, work off your jab. You know, you're, they're telling him, you know, you're, you're getting a little too passive in there. You're looking for one punch. Like you said, being relegated to being a puncher, you're not creating opportunities. You're kind of just trying to walk him down and they're warning him about this when that kind of ones up coming, biting him in the ass in a round or so. But for the time being, unfortunately, uh, you know, Ruddick, it's the fighting back is just a little bit too few and far between. Almost like Tyson, you get these glimpses of what he could do if he were a little more active and opened up a little bit more, but he's not. He's not active. He's not opening up just quite enough. Yeah, I, I have Tyson landing a big right that wobbles Razor in this round. Um, but Razor is a little more active. He has mm-hmm. come to life a little bit. Um, and, uh, Tyson Flurry mid round is, is kind of novel in this one. I mean, 
again, you're just seeing glimpses of who he was and you're just going, wow, like that, that's still there. Um, it, it, I just kept thinking that this is a 24 year old <laughs> because it feels like he's at the end of his career in the way that you're like seeing glimpses, sort of like the way we used to watch Foreman in his second career, where you're just sort of like, oh, wow, there's a flash of who he was. But that guy was in his 40s, not not so young as Tyson. Like at, at some point, I, I think I'm going to have in my notes later, it said that Tyson is the oldest 24-year-old in the world. <laughs> and that stayed with me because I was just like, that is the feeling I have watching him. Is I've never seen a 24-year-old where I have this feeling of like, he's at the end of something. Normally, they're at the beginning of something, right? Like, I mean, yeah. so... Uh, I mean, I have Tyson up five zip going into the sixth. Um, mm -hmm. In the sixth, Tyson charges in and gets caught by two small hooks. Um, Mid-round is the best exchange of the fight. Um, and the fight has suddenly become like a duel. It, 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 it's just like two gunslingers that are just like, I'm going to get to you before you get to me. I'm going to land something that's going to take your head off because they're swinging for the fences. They're open to being countered. But um, I'd never really seen Tyson degenerate, like be, be willing to enter into this kind of agreement with a fighter because he never had to. So I don't know if it's just like a macho thing on his part, or again, it's just, he's got so much nervous energy about somebody who represents such a danger to him as Ruddick's punching power and the fact that he's getting up after he's being knocked down. Um, but it's it's a, a new way to see Tyson in a fight that I don't think we'd ever seen before with an yeah. opponent. I think that this is definitely, and it's easier to say this in hindsight, especially, but um, yeah, it, you definitely got a little bit more of a firefight in round six. And it seems to be the moment at which this change against Ruddick comes for Tyson where like, you know, he's still kind of fighting pissed off and he's still kind of, you know, he's, he's fairly intense and whatnot, but then toward the end of the round, you know, Ruddick is fighting back, but not that effectively. I and mean, it looks good, but then all of a sudden toward the end of the round, he lands like a three or four punch combination that seems to rock Tyson briefly. And it's yeah. like, Whoa, we got something here. Okay. And that's the moment at which it's kind of just like, that what we were seeing is several rounds ago with Tyson doesn't really come back. Doesn't really come yeah. back after that. Not really. And so uh, maybe it was getting hurt. Maybe it was sending the guy down twice and he got up twice to hurt you. I mean, I, I'm not a fighter. I couldn't say, but I, I could imagine that in the midst of a fight, even if, it, if, if it's not, you know, fucking Corrales Castillo level, regardless, it feels that way to you when you're in the middle of the fucking fight. You know, but in the midst of a fight and you get this guy down and you even feel like perhaps you've won every round, but like the guy comes back and then he fucking hurts you. God, dude, that's got to play on you, you know? Yeah, I mean, this was the only round I, I, I've i given to Ruddick so far with 40 seconds left. I thought he ended, ended the round with the best flurry of the fight for him and definitely seemed to hurt Tyson. Um, and that... It's funny because Tyson's like a little kid in terms of his face. Like he looks like he wants to cry. Like there's a way that Tyson just looks, I can't believe somebody did that to me. Like you almost feel sorry for him in the fight. He has a, a response to getting rocked, which is is just interesting 
Some some guys very much look like a man taking a punch where it's just not showing any emotion. Tyson always looks like a little kid, like a like a baby. Yeah, like he way. just got scolded. It's, right. Right. Yeah, it, he's it's like just it's funny. Um round seven, I thought Razor had a lot more comp confidence. Tyson looks more sluggish, probably as you say, still recovering. Um mid-round Tyson, Tyson lands a huge right and a flurry. And I just, I mean, this is where there's the super controversial steel jumping in and, you know, I don't see a way to justify it. Given, given the tenor of the fight where there'd been lots of back and forth exchanges where, where guys were either knocked down or kind of hurt or took a huge shot. I, I don't understand the logic of steel jumping in the way he did. It does seem highly suspicious to me. And, and if it's not suspicious, then it's just, incompetent yeah i mean i there was a lot of push and pull for about 10 years or so leading up to this about officials and refereeing richards richard Steele being part of that discussion but obviously mancini kim uh spooked a lot of officials and after in the in the few years after that there were several big fights that were stopped way early like what the fuck are you thinking early, you know, like, and I think that a lot of people felt that that was the knee jerk reaction to people just being so freaked out by Mancini Kim, where for the first time in about 20 years, we're seeing uh, uh, somebody in a high level fight championship level fight basically die right there live on your television, which freaked people. I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to justify anything. I'm simply saying the the kind of cultural uh, aspect to this and the timing and it that even extended into the 90s and what helped extend it was Richard Steele's stoppage of Meldrick Taylor against Julio Cesar Chavez in the first fight and I mean that shit is still super controversial on both sides to this day it's like you either fully agree with that shit or you hate Richard Steele for it like you want to you just wish him bad things and so that that stoppage really urged on this conversation which carried over into this fight i think and so a lot of people were like here's richard Steele with another fucking early stoppage so again not to justify it but i think that uh kind of helped contribute to the conversation what didn't help was there was ruddock had been down twice and that uh you know mike tyson he's throwing these massive bombs missing most of them but they look scary and ah you know he's attacking him and then Ruddick kind of falls back. And like I said, the way that uh, he fell early, the way that he got knocked down earlier, similarly, he's done He's done this in other fights too, like against Morrison when he gets stopped, he's protesting and blah, 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 even though he gets up. But he's like, for a, a couple seconds, looks like he's totally fucking out of it. He recovers really quickly, just like in the Tyson stoppage here. But for a couple seconds, he's like, you know, against the ropes, like he's out of it. So it's like I could kind of see how in the moment Richard Steele's like, holy shit, no. And then three seconds later, he's like, wait, what are you doing? You know what I mean? It's like, uh, what do you do? There's almost no correct call to make in that situation. But yeah, uh, it very clearly was controversial enough, borderline enough that they're like, we got to have a uh, we got to have a rematch. And immediately after the stoppage, uh, I'm I'm almost positive it was Murad Muhammad goes and attacks Richie Giacchetti, who is Mike Tyson's, who's serving as Mike Tyson's main main squeeze in the corner there. 
Richie Giacchetti's, uh, you know, not a super mainstream name as far as fight trainers, but if you go into like, you know, the history discussions, he's, he's around a lot. And uh, in any case, Richie Giacchetti take, gets the bad end of a Murad Muhammad attack in the immediate aftermath of the stoppage. You know, it, it was a bad look and it was another Tyson controversy. It's like, Jesus Christ, bro. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so let's get to the second one. I mean, again, sure. A contrast to, to today's boxing where this happens three months later. Yep. <laughs> June 28th, um, same, same facility. Ruddick gains 10 pounds. Not, not the most auspicious sign. Uh, you have two fun announcers. You mentioned Mike Marley, uh, quite a, quite a character. What did he, he died last year? Was it? I it was either last year or late the year before. But he briefly, I'll just say, uh, he actually started the Muhammad Ali fan club in New York when he, he was like eighteen or something like that. I think and in so, Boston. He was from Boston. Oh, I know he was an attorney in New York, so I could be wrong about where he started out, but I know he was an attorney in New York in any case. That's but right. um, but He was point... my attorney. Did I ever tell you that, that he, I hired him once? <laughs> no, I did not know that. I, <laughs> I did not know him super well, but I knew him. I knew him. He was a, he was a character, that's for sure. Um, but yeah, <laughs> but I guess just pointing out how, how far back he goes in boxing behind the scenes. Yeah, he wrote for the New York Post to cover boxing. He worked for Don King for a long time, and then he became a criminal attorney for a while. Uh, we lived about three <laughs> blocks away from each other when I first moved to New York. So you, you would see him. He'd always wear a pink hat, like a pink fedora. Uh, he, he always had some outfit on, dude. Yeah. He was he was one of the weirdest people. Like, he he was such a strange presence if he was kind of in repose. Um, but he was also really smart. Like, like he, he just had, he was one of those people where you would miss, misjudge him gravely, like at your own peril. If you assumed like, because he just kind of looked like a guy is big goofball like, energy for sure. Yeah. Big goofball. And he, he looked like Lenny from of mice and men, like kind of a simpleton. But then when you talk to him, it's just like, oh, no, he's really bright. He's very sharp and astute, but he just didn't give that off. I'm, yeah. I'm not trying to speak in any way to denigrate him, but it's just he was he was a, a real presence. He knew everybody. Um, yeah. So Mike Marley out of the blue. It's just so funny to hear his voice on this. And uh, Ian Parquet, I think his name is, is the other announcer, an English announcer. I, I watched the... the... I watched the other version of it, but there's a few versions up there. There's like a sky version. That might be the sky version. That must be, it must be the sky version, but it's a fun announcing pair. If you get, if you get the two, two of them together. Um, and, you know, Ruddick comes out here, definitely moving more. He definitely seems like he is encouraged by what happened in the first fight. He, I mean, the odds are, I think, even more slanted for, in Tyson's favor after the first fight going into this one, like four or five to one. Um, and there's good exchanges right off the bat. I mean, I think this is a much better fight than the first one. And Tyson is throwing a lot of these devastating sweeping right hands, and and, and Ruddick is throwing his sort of patented hooks. And um, 
I had Tyson catching Ruddick twice and wobbling him in in the round, but uh, it's just a down and dirty war. This second fight. I mean, the second fight is where it'd be like I could see it being a fight of the year because it's just they're just there's more throwing. back and forth for sure. There's more back and forth, but it's almost like an old like 19th century naval battle where it's like the two boats go side by side and they just do, 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 just open fire on each other. Like there's there's not much sort of strategy or tactics in this. It's just mm-hmm. it's just war. Um, I still gave it to Tyson again. I mean, Tyson is winning way more of these rounds than I remembered back at the time. Yeah, I agree. I gave the first to Tyson. Um, I made a little note, too, that before the second fight, he went on Arsenio and said that Ruddick busted his right eardrum in the first fight, which I didn't know. And it makes sense, too, that that combination toward the end of the six busted his eardrum, and that's why he looked wobbled. Um, so he it, he said on the Arsenio, on that Arsenio episode, that Tony Tucker was his most difficult fight, not Ruddick. And he said, if I fight him next time he wants the rematch, I'm going to kill him. And the crowd goes, yeah! You know, so it's mm. like once again, I don't know. It doesn't bother me per se. It's just, it's just strange, I guess, to to revisit that. But in any case, yes, Tyson first round, no question. Um, but one thing that is different about this fight is that twice in the first round, Ruddick goes to hold Tyson the way that he had in the first round with his lead hand and Mills Lane. The first time is like, ah! you know, doesn't let him, and then the second time, straight fucking like swings from his arm to get that shit off of Tyson's neck. He's just like, get the fuck out of here. I appreciate that. I appreciate that for sure. I don't like overly officious referees, but I like that in any case. uh, So yeah. um, Second round again, kind of keeps going in that direction. Mills lane is having a little bit of a time breaking them up, but Hey, you know, they're two fairly large, heavy heavyweights, perhaps not tall in Tyson's case, but two big, strong guys, they're clashing. And like you said, there's still a little bit of uh, rust. There's still a bit, a little bit of sloppy action in there, but they are going, they are throwing at each other. This is a little bit more opening up uh, uh, as far as, you know, sniping back and forth in this fight. And I still gave the second to Tyson, but you can see that Ruddock is fighting a little bit differently here. Yeah, you can. I mean, Tyson lands a combination and a and a body shot, which Lane calls low here. This is going to become a pretty big theme of the fight. Go ahead. Yeah. Yep. Go ahead. Lot lot of low stuff. And I didn't immediately think that most of them were that low, bro. I, I honestly, either, I, I thought either. his they were riding the protector was riding way up. I didn't think they were that low at all. No, I, I, I thought didn't. he was he was a little too vigilant for it in a way that, yeah, skewed, skewed the fight. Yeah, I didn't appreciate um, that part. I mean, immediately after the low blow, there's a knockdown with a windmill right that Tyson throws. It's interesting in this fight, like the 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 range of right hands that Tyson throws, because he's got a lot of them. Like he he has, it's an interesting arsenal of right hands that I, I didn't really appreciate at the time. Um, but he is changing them up like a pitcher a little bit. Um, yeah, rather so than using his game. legs, he's kind of changing the angles on his head movement and his punches, yeah. which in a way is kind of smart, but it's also uh, it, it's showing that it's, you know, den- uh, he's devolving a little bit, too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Tyson goes for the kill and lands several bombs at the end of the round, uh, almost like 20 unanswered shots at one point. 
But again, what's interesting is you're not seeing him using angles to land them. And even now, there are like little boxing videos where he's trying to teach people how to do what his style is. He's always showing them how to find angles, throw a couple punches, find a new angle. He's not doing that here. And I mean, he's still only 24 years old, but he's he's just degenerating a lot in terms of uh, how sophisticated his attack was. So I think that this, you know, as we try to weigh the significance of this fight about how much is it has he eroded as a talent versus have we underestimated Razor Ruddock? Does Ruddock deserve more credit? Tyson's giving you a lot of evidence that this is about his erosion more than it's about the quality of Ruddock. Even though I'm not trying to say that Ruddick isn't a difficult opponent, but you're just seeing that this is a very diminished Tyson. Yeah, um, I agree. So, I, so, so third round, how did you see that one? Uh, I actually scored that for Ruddick, um, but it was the last half of the round that won it for him because basically uh, one thing I noted was that for whatever reason, Ruddick started looking for a right hand in round three. And that he briefly found some success with the right hand, but then went went back to uh, his left hand. But then Tyson started getting some body work in. Uh, however, let's see. I'm sorry, I can't fucking read. I'm so blind. <laughs> uh, it's I said that Ruddick landed a few nice shots in response to the body work from Tyson. Uh, and then I also noted that there was a low left hand from Tyson, but also noted that Ruddick's trunk seemed fairly high to me. But that uh, I thought it was a close round, but just that the that Ruddick breaking through in the last latter half of the round might have taken it for him. Yeah, I mean, I had Ruddick landing the best shot of the fight. Uh, the announcer comments on Tyson's availability to be hit, quote, these days. That's just the thing that's interesting about these fights is the perception of Tyson changing. And you're hearing it from the crowd and you're hearing it from the announcers. Um, and Tyson landed at the beginning of the round a big right hand, but took a massive left uppercut. So you're seeing his chin tested in a way that is we haven't really seen since Douglas. Uh, lots of big uppercuts from from Razor. Tyson's chin is very impressive, but his defense is just is just not there. Um, and you're just hearing from the announcers that he he looks discouraged. I think that's an interesting word. When you're going to think about yep. all of the losses that Tyson has, a theme in all of them is discouragement. He He's not as competitive yep. any longer. He's looking for other ways to win fights other than his spirit and, and sort of the dog in him to use boxing parlance. It's just not there anymore. I think he's just, he's just, it's just a different way of seeing himself in the world. Now, perhaps that's because of losing to Douglas Maybe there's that thing about like never, never having lost. And you think that there's some, I, not necessarily like a divine calling, but like you're led by a North star, you can't be defeated. You see this in military history with, you know, Alexander, <laughs> the great Napoleon, I can't lose because I'm chosen to be, to be this kind of thing. Maybe Tyson bought into that, but after Douglas, that had changed, that had clearly dramatically changed. And this version of Tyson is just in a dogfight more than anything and and he's still you know a very formidable opponent with that but i think it's important we remember that's not who he was before he was he was a lot more than just 
a tough guy with really fast hands who could hit hard. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah, you can definitely see that um, the frustration, the fact that it's almost like you you dare to not just fall when I hit you. You're going to fight yeah. back? What's wrong with you? You know what I mean? It's like you almost see that level of, and, and I think that that might be tied into what you're talking about. The, the idea of like, you are the chosen one. How could you fucking dare, you know, to oppose me? And yet Ruddock is, um, you know, he's, he's not, he's not winning the fight, but it's almost like he doesn't have to win just to be in there. You know, he just has to stay upright and there's that chance that Tyson will implode. And if this were several years later, he might have, he might've just fully imploded, but but he did. Uh, you can see Tyson uh, breaking through. And again, we come back to the low blows, dude. Unfortunately, uh, Mills Lane starts calling these these shots in the round four that, in my opinion, just were not very low. Like, I mean, they were at best borderline because Ruddock's trunks are, are riding up. And uh, so Tyson scores a uh, scores a body shot, but then loses a point. And it winds up being, in my opinion, a nine eight kind of round for Tyson. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I don't understand why he was so hung up on these low blows that were borderline. I mean, I I can be pretty sensitive to to, to that. Um, I mean, th th like Andre Ward, like nobody's really bringing up that second Kovalev fight about how low those those shots were. They did at the time, but it's not like a famously low blow one fight. Yeah. Um, but these are all pretty questionable. Like none, none of these are, are all that clear. Um, and I mean, just, yeah, you're just seeing Ruddick continuing to frustrate Tyson. As you said, he lands a smash uppercut finally, but gets countered and he's off balance. Um, Tyson starts following him, lands a great left hook and straight left from a switch stance. So again, you're seeing that glimpse of who Tyson used to be. It's, it's, really electrifying to watch but tyson's sophistication is eroding badly and he's yeah. just degenerating to just i'll take a shot in order to land a shot mm -hmm. and that's not a version of tyson we'd ever seen before um but they're all they're, these are all interspersed with glimpses of the old tyson speed and rhythm um but most of the time it's not really there so yeah one point deduction so i mean moving into the fifth and you can you can feel like this fight is going to get dirtier and dirtier um razor is just throwing at this point big confident shots like this is the best version of razor that we've seen in the two fights and a lot of them are finding the target on tyson who's just looking even more basic and plodding and mid-round there's a great exchange of hooks and they almost look like kind of like a ball on a chain, like a mace on a chain kind of thing. The way they're throwing them at like they're whipping around at each other. And just Tyson keeps landing these vicious body shots that for me gave him the round. I think, I think Tyson's fidelity to a body attack is what's keeping him alive in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's definitely making a big difference because he, there are moments now where Tyson's starting to trade left hooks because his movement, you know, we're in round five, dude. Uh, and this is unfortunately starting to become, you know, latter years, even though it's only 1991, latter years trademark Tyson, where after a few rounds, it's, you know, he slows down, he starts looking for like a dogfight type of thing, you know, on his terms, and he's trading hooks with Ruddick 
which is obviously not a good idea. So Ruddick is able to get some shots in there and the action in close is fairly close, or at least it's getting close. It's that Tyson's dedication to the body is what's really making the difference. I agree with you there. Um, you know, he's kind of falling in with his right hand. And one of the things that I said at the end of the round here at, in fifth was that Tyson appears to be acquiescing to the clinches rather than before where he was kind of pushing Ruddick off and trying to, you know, tussle with him and like, you know, get off me and trying to like land punches off the clinch and stuff like that. And now he's kind of just, he he's kind of just playing the, the clinch game. Like, you know, all right, you clinch and let's get a break. Um, and I think that that's, that's something that we see as far as the energy from Tyson. But again, Ruddick's energy at times is so low as far as his offensive output that it's really the body work and Ruddick's low output is that's what's keeping Tyson in this firmly, you know, and preventing Ruddick from really land, or, uh, winning a lot of rounds. So round six, Tyson's corner correctly telling him he needs to work more, period. You know, like you, you're winning, but like you're not separating yourself that much here. Um, Ruddick's finally getting in on his jab, but uh, Mills Lane pulls him <laughs> pulls him to the side and says, you're grabbing too much. So good body shot from Ruddick as he kind of comes out of there. But uh, Tyson looks like he's starting to get tired. However, again, what keeps happening is that Ruddick, it's not working enough. And then on the inside, he's allowing Tyson to get work off. It's just, you know, there are so many moments where if Ruddick just had done this, it wouldn't have gone down that way. Sixth round, I had a lot of notes that it's interesting about the impression of the announcers and the crowd of where Tyson is at this stage. This is where it's brought up that Mickey Duff said that Tyson was the oldest 24 year old in the world. Um, one of the commentators, the English commentator says that Tyson is paying the price, <laughs> potentially paying the price for an excessive lifestyle. Um, and it's interesting that they, Tyson once said that the definition of greatness is longevity. That's how we measure greatness. So what an interesting way to disqualify himself from greatness. Because if you made an argument about potential or, or how much talent, but he's specifically saying longevity, which is sort of, you know, like, again, like Michael Jordan's legacy is consistent longevity at the absolute top level that he could be. Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, a number of baseball players. Tyson doesn't allow you to do that. As they say, like Tyson is a bit more like Marlon Brando, where you see more potential than anybody, and then they just don't care anymore, or they don't care anywhere near what they originally did to get where they did. But you can't let go of how much potential they have in terms of regarding them as something special, because it's undeniable. So how many musical acts could you say, you know, like how many musical acts could you say, like you, you brought up Michael Jackson, but how many more were they had a, an album that was just like, Oh my God, that was so good. But then everything else is like, you know, like it, well, it happens. This, it's crazy. And, and this is, and this is what's hard in music. And it was hard for Michael Jackson is because you have the Beatles and the Beatles go from, I want to hold your hand to Sergeant Pepper in like three years. Well, where did Michael Jackson go from Thriller to his Sgt. Pepper? Nowhere, because it didn't. he didn't have that creatively. He could only measure success by album sales because he couldn't measure it creatively, because there was a clear benchmark that was insurmountable for, for him, for, for his ceiling. 
And so he had to move to the economic, just as you know, Avatar may be the best-selling movie of all time. Nobody ever is suggesting it's the greatest movie of all time. But Michael Jackson tried to make that argument by conflating thriller's success with that it's my it's my creativity or 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 whatever. So I think with with Tyson, Tyson was always dogged a little bit by these other great fighters as they did have great longevity. Obviously, Ali's legacy is is so many chapters that you have. Tyson's is really small yep. beyond the stuff that makes you feel miserable. And that stuff that makes us feel miserable watching his decline still was like the most lucrative era pre-Floyd that that like any anybody in sports ever had right i mean he comes out of jail for rape around this time right after the ruddock fights and he's more marketable than he was before he went into jail that's who he was in terms of his hold on us of our curiosity about what's he gonna do it wasn't about seeing this extraordinary athlete it was just it was more a a, a myth he'd become a myth more than he was a person by the time he was 20 sort of thing that's that's really unusual so we are seeing this myth legend tyson being taking over from who he was before of substance that substance is changing so you're hearing the announcers in this sixth round saying it's not a boxing match any longer it's a punching exhibition when's the last time that tyson had ever had commentary like that about where he was at and by the end of the round, Tyson's mouthpiece is knocked out mm -hmm. by a vicious hook. Um, yep. He's just he's just changing in our imagination, I think, a lot. And this fight is is allowing you an opportunity to check in with who is he really. I I gave that round uh, to Tyson, but the but I made a note and I said Ruddick didn't work enough, which is saying a lot because Tyson wasn't working a ton either. And so right. Ruddick's so, you know, his, his output was just so low that it made Tyson's own output, which was already low, look like he was outworking him. And it was like, God, if you just thrown more punches, like you knocked his mouthpiece out and landed a couple of really good shots at the end of the round, but you got outworked the entire other, like two minutes and like 45 seconds, like, goddamn. So, um, yeah. but I, I wouldn't be hurt if anybody gave that round to Ruddick based on that, you know, late flurry, because it was good. Yeah. And I mean, seventh round, the slugfest has become even more basic. Uh, Ruddick is not really moving or jabbing. And um, I mean, Tyson's story, I mean, at some time, there's a comment here. Tyson's story makes the Rocky films look like the sound of music, is what one of the commentators say. <laughs> uh, it's a really weird comment. Um, but mid-round, um, Ruddick lands huge twice. He stuns Tyson in this round. And the last 20 seconds, Ruddick lands another smash. It's the best shot of the night so far, and I gave, I gave the round to Ruddick. So it, it kind of feels like Ruddick's really coming on at this point. Agreed. I, I had very similar notes. I said that uh, Ruddick started coming on, and initially Tyson was responding really well and countering back. But then finally uh, Ruddick lands a combination that almost looks like it kind of stuns Tyson a little bit toward the end of the round. And I thought that that was a fairly clear, perhaps the clearest Ruddick round, uh, you know, that they've that they fought. 
Yeah. I mean, the announcer, the actual quote he said was, still somehow the whole world is wrapped up in Tyson's story, a story which makes the Rocky films look like the sound of music. So it's just funny you get these kind of like this grandiose statements about Tyson in this fight, where it's like that hadn't really happened before, where people were taking in this might not ever go back to what yeah, it was. They're starting There's they're starting to look that. at the totality of the career now. Like they're it's not just fight yeah. by fight. Yeah. They're starting to do assessments no. mid fight. <laughs> yeah, and that, that that Tyson's career before is not throat clear. Like, like you're here. Like th this is really where he is. Uh, believe your eyes for a second instead of all of the hype. Um, at eighth round, I just have that it's it's become a war of attrition. It's the dullest round of the fight. There is a, a vicious left to the body that Tyson lands, but uh, Ruddick gets a point deducted. So I, I had it scored an even round because of that. But man, this is just just a, a strange fight to see Tyson in. He he is just in this ugly brawl uh, of these two huge guys, but um, I just hadn't, I can't remember seeing Tyson kind of reduced to that before. I mean, a little bit in Douglas, but still uh, even an out of shape fight in out of shape Tyson in Douglas, there were glimpses, more glimpses of who he was um, here. He, he's almost seems like, he's adapted to becoming so basic as a baseline. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's kind of like, it's a, it becomes a somewhat frustrating fight to watch for that reason, just because you realize that a little bit more could be happening to make it a much better fight or to make one fighter separate themselves or to kind of gain a foothold, which doesn't, you know, it's, it's a little bit too, the output's a little too anemic. They're, cooperating too much in clinches and stuff like that and even though there is some glimpses like we keep saying of good work inside especially from Tyson because he keeps going to the body it's just that you know some of that keeps getting taken away here because he's continuing to get warnings about low blows and stuff like that but um you know Ruddick again demonstrating that when he gets hit clean and especially off balance god he just can't keep his feet dude you know and he keeps getting into these situations no, it's true. Uh, ninth round, I've never seen Tyson's feet look heavier. He, they're barely leaving the ground. He's shuffling around the ring. Very, very unusual sight for Tyson, who was so light on his feet. Like, you know, couldn't couldn't stay off. Like he was like, like as if he was skipping all the times when he was at his best. But here he just looks so heavy. Um, announcer makes the point, the spark is missing. I don't know if he's lost it permanently about Tyson. I just keep pointing this out because it's just interesting about the, even when he gets out of jail and regains pieces of the heavyweight championship, uh, going into the Holyfield fight to give, to make Holyfield such an underdog in that fight allows us to witness sort of the, the reestablishing of the Tyson aura of, of inevitability where like, you know, Holyfield was at this fight. Holyfield was watching what Tyson was like. And it's like only he could see it in a way. It was like, I have, I'll have no problem with this guy. But we just we just couldn't accept what we were seeing. Um, Tyson, Tyson gets another point deducted for a low blow, which is a complete bullshit call, I have noted. 
Um, great body shots get exchanged, but but I, other than the deduction of the point, it, for me, it was Tyson's round. He's he's trying to come back a bit. I think that I gave it to Ruddock based on the point deduction and that I thought it was close enough, but it was like, I thought I also noted it as a fairly close round that if you gave it to Tyson, I wouldn't argue. Um, but that the the body work was better than it was appearing because it was being touted as low. And Ruddock overall was you know, not really liking the body work and he was responding to it. So, you know, a little bit frustrating to see him get another point deducted for that. Um, but like, you know, it, it kind of set the tenor, I thought too, for Tyson, to we could see it, you know, regardless of what the commentators were saying, there was some slippage there. Both guys were getting tired, what started out sloppy, but started kind of, you know, becoming a little bit tighter, became sloppy again. 10th round, I have Tyson really beginning a tremendous body attack against Ruddick. The problem being is that Ruddick is responsible enough to keep his gloves up, which prevents the knockout shot that Tyson is looking for. However, Tyson is able to land enough shots that Ruddick looks hurt. He he definitely it, it, it is having an impact. Another point deducted for a low blow. I mean, it's kind of interesting to think of the potential here for a disqualification even though it doesn't look like Lane wants to implement it. But, I mean, you're like, and, how many points deducted? And I'm sorry to interrupt, but what I also noted when I was doing you know, my notes was that he doesn't even specify who he's taking the point from initially and what it's for. And so right. initially I thought he was taking a point from Ruddick for holding because he warns him like six times during the fight. He like takes his arm and is like, stop holding. And so I'm like, oh, he's finally – was that a low blow deduction? Sure enough, and I'm yeah. just like, what, dude? Why? It was a bad call, no. dude. It's a really bad call. And toward the end of the round, it's the only time in both fights where Ruddick sets a clear trap for Tyson, and he backs up and lands a left hook beautifully, luring in, you know, the, the guy who's charging. And Tyson's really clearly stunned. So it's another round that I gave to to Razor. <laughs> And with the point deduction, it's significant. I mean, I think I have it five five rounds Tyson, three Ruddock, two even at that point. It's a um, significant round just going for in, that reason. Yeah, it, it is. It is. And going into the 11th, I mean, we're back to the slugfest, a lot of clinching. Um, but it's it's one or the other. They're, they're just, it's like a bar fight. It, it, <laughs> there's not much to it. Um, but I thought Razor got the best of it. So Going into the last round, how did you see the 12th? I, I thought Tyson took the 11th, but also a close round. But because it was, uh, again, I kept noting that what is going to Tyson in some of these rounds is Ruddock's inact relative inactivity, um, but that he was breaking through with some shots. However, at the start of the 11th round, you could also see that Ruddock's left eye was starting to close, meaning Tyson was obviously landing some of those right hands. However, yeah. Let's see, going into the final round, I had it, gosh, I, I forgot to tally up the actual rounds, but I had it, um, I guess it would have been 103 to 101 in points. Yeah, 103, 101, uh, Mike Tyson going into the final round, meaning I had it 
fairly close. I mean, like, you know, within a few points to, to where if Ruddock had really stormed forth, he might've had an argument. Yeah. I, I mean, I gave the 12th to Tyson barely, but, but ending up with a six, four, two score, two rounds, even. So had Tyson lost the round, you'd have a draw on my scorecard, which kind of surprises me. Um, as you mentioned, R Razor's face by the 12th round is badly swollen. He's never gone more than 10 rounds in his career up to that point. And his, his eye is swollen shut and his jaw has been broken, we find out later. So Tyson's definitely been able to do some real damage. Um, I just thought Tyson was a little more energized toward the end. Um, yeah. But but sloppy and here he is landing some legitimate low blows also yeah. um, ironically he ended the fight with like a legit low blow <laughs> yeah and i mean you know the weird thing with this fight too is the aftermath i mean leading up to to tyson and desiree washington and indianapolis and everything but immediately after this fight tyson and vander holyfield engage in serious negotiations to fight um, there's also the attempt to get a fight with George Foreman. And I remember that at that time, I think there was like a, it was at the library. There was an, an image of Tyson and Foreman where they were, it's like a, like a boxing poster for the two of them that, that they'd created yeah. for it. And just think, oh my God, Tyson is going to fight George Foreman. Um, I asked, actually asked George Foreman about that when I was at his house in Houston and I said, do you regret not fighting Tyson? And he said, son, you don't regret not fighting Mike Tyson. <laughs> so that was his view. As much um, as I do kind of like George Foreman, I I hate the canned responses he gives with all those things. You know what I true. mean? Like, because you ask him about the Ali fight and he'll immediately say, yeah, I was the dope. He gave me the rope of dope and I was the dope. And it's like, dude, you've, you've said this in every single interview about the, can you give me something real, bro? You know? I I like well, you know, him. I just like damn. Come on, give me a real answer. To to, to, to that point, I'll, I'll give you. I'll tell you something that it wasn't included in what was filmed with him. I filmed Foreman because I got his phone number. I think from Mike Marley actually. I got his phone number from Mike Marley, and George picked up right off the bat. None of these guys pick up the phone right off the bat. And I mentioned Teofilo Stevenson having just died, and he's like. I'll talk about Teofilo Stevenson. Why? And he said, because he was the best heavyweight of any of us. I was like, whoa, okay, I need to, I need to record this. Can, like, how do I do this? You can come to the house. So he gave me the address and like George the seventh was like our chaperone to, to set it up. And another guy I was with who was sort of bankrolling the thing had an independent project for Foreman, which was about fighting Joe Frazier in Jamaica. And this guy kept pushing George to talk about Jamaica and to talk about Don King walking over almost the corpse of Joe Frazier to, to set up a deal with Foreman. And Foreman kept saying, that didn't happen. Well, there's footage of it. Some people say there's footage of that happening. It didn't happen. Well, it's in this book here. And he just looked at this other guy who's, who's from New York and went, son, if you ask me that question one more time, you'll be asked to leave. And then went right back to jovial pitchman foreman. But he was so frightening in that moment that I, I, I bring it up because 
Tyson is pretending to be a tough guy, but he is a very soft person in many ways. Foreman is pretending to be a soft guy, but he is the toughest fucking guy I've ever been in a room with that he doesn't need to pretend to be tough. Well, you know, and this and was him 65 or something. Well, and that, that ties directly into a lot of like the contemporary discussion about alpha males where the easy response, and in my opinion, extreme fact is that if you have to talk about the fact that you're an alpha male, you're so clearly not that right. the only reason why you're doing it is because you want the actual people that you perceive as alpha males to also think that you're one. That's it. That's all yeah. it has to do with. And I, when I you, and you when you exude that, you don't have to talk about it. And this is, in my opinion, kind of what you're talking about here. And what Jim Lampley has said about George Foreman, and I didn't really get much context to it or why he felt this way, but Jim Lampley said, George Foreman is the phoniest person I've ever met in my life. And I'm like, if Jim Lampley's saying that, that's saying something, you know, but I mean, it, and I think I, that's how I took it to mean from him is that he, I took it to mean that George Foreman kind of puts forth this persona of being the kind of jovial grandpa who just happened to be a fighter back in the day when actually he's kind of a somewhat menacing figure in reality. He just It's just very present. I mean, I will say his son were some of the most immaculately nice people I've ever dealt with. Like they were so kind and thoughtful and I took them out for a barbecue like to go to their favorite barbecue place in Houston. They were so nice, affable people that I dealt with through George. Um, but George really runs his household like a military <laughs> household. Like all of his sons call him sir. And they speak on an intercom in the mansion and stuff like that. And it's not that they're afraid of him, but it felt very military. He He breeds, I think, greyhounds in the backyard. And he wouldn't let us see it because he was just like, they're not ready to be seen. Like if it's not perfect, he will not allow you to see anything. So I don't know that he, I would say that he's fraudulent. <laughs> I just think he's kind of complex in, in a certain sure. and way. And that's not me saying it, you know, that's Lampley. No, 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 no. But, no, but no, I could no. see it. I'm just, and, and I'm just saying this from like one afternoon for an hour with sure, him. Sure, sure. But I just, my, my, my sense of, his, of him, also I will say he is the greatest performer I've ever seen ever like other than like Lance Armstrong he is the greatest performer I've ever seen we sat down and he was like how do I Teofilio Steven how do I say that name I was like oh god like what is this interview going to be Teofilo Stevenson and he's like okay Teofilo Stevenson okay I'm ready camera's on Teofilo Stevenson was the greatest heavyweight of my generation he was on this little island while I'm winning the heavyweight championship and all of these riches Stevenson was on this little island in Cuba, looking out at the rest of the world, fighting for something more than any of us could ever fight. I was like, this is the greatest speech. And he's just doing this extemporaneously. And it was 25 minutes of just gold. And he couldn't pronounce the guy's name. He barely knew who he was at the outset. But like, that's George. Well, George, perhaps that's what Lampley meant was that he was a top level BSer. I And I, I don't know, but I just mean like if, if I showed you, like, I have like a little short about this, about Teofilo Stevenson potentially fighting Ali. George, you would think he's talking about like a brother he was, who was put up for adoption, who he just, for all his life, he wants to tell you about how much he feels about Teofilo Stevenson. Barely knew who he was. 
<laughs> that's who he can be. It was so impressive and kind of disturbing. It's it's pretty wild. I think there was one issue of the ring. I'm almost positive that had both Foreman and Tyson on the cover. So it was a fight that they were talking about and they did want to push it. Um, but a, a lot of people also forget that it's it's a lot easier to take serious now because at the time people were like, George, that George Foreman? Like, you know, yeah, people were like, right. Dude, he's not real. Like, you know, like he's not, he's not serious about his comeback, putting him in with tight. That's stupid. Mike Tyson. When now we realize that like, that would have been a legit matchup. That wasn't, I'm not saying who would have won. I'm just saying that would have been a legit matchup. Um, and so it, it's not that outside the realm of possibility that it could have happened. It almost did. Well, and, and to put that in perspective, I mean, George at 48 years old, scared the hell out of Shannon Briggs. He beat Shannon Briggs, like a 25-year-old Shannon Briggs. Like, that's where he was at 48 kind of thing. And, and, and I mean, even Evander Holyfield, like, there are moments there where Holyfield had a lot of trouble. <laughs> yeah, th- we, d- we mean, talked Morris- about that fight, and that was a way closer kind of battle than you might have expected. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and so you're just right to say that, like, before before Foreman really had that fight with Holyfield, people didn't take it seriously. And I remember at that time, because like George was very open. He's like, he didn't have any money after he became a preacher and he lost all his money. And he's like, I'm coming back for money. I'm, I'm doing the grill. I'm doing all of these kind of things. But uh, I mean, like there was the famous fight with Jerry Cooney, that incredible <laughs> knockout of Cooney, poor Cooney. Um, but you didn't know like what, what is this? It seemed silly. It seemed like celebrity boxing for and its the, time. The next night he went on to, I think it was either Leno or Letterman and his face was swollen up and he was like, yeah, Jerry Cooney just hit me harder than I've ever been hit. And his, his face was all swelled up and his cheek was swelled up. And it's like, damn, I didn't even see that during the fight. But it, that also raised a lot of doubt because people were like, well, if Jerry Cooney's doing that, dude, this is kind of rough. I don't know. And, and and for for people who don't know, like I, I I did a profile on Shannon Briggs where Evander Holyfield was down there in Hollywood, Florida at the so-called heavyweight factory, which is more let's like a let's go champ. Restaurant. Yeah, let's go champ. And Riddick Bowe was there. And I had about 45 minutes with Holyfield, who I'd never met before. And at some point I asked him who was the hardest hitter. And both he and Briggs were like the same guy that we fought, George Foreman. So they're talking about a, you know, a foreman who's in his mid forties or his late forties. That foreman, not the foreman who is who is fighting Ali and everybody else, like first generation foreman. But they both like there was not a second of hesitation about who the hardest puncher was. So it's just just a thing to to think about because when you watch him, you you just cannot appreciate that there's power generated from such slow punches. I hit heavy bags, right? Like we a lot of punch. I, I've hurt my wrists hitting like hundred pound heavy bags. And I'm like, ow, watch video of George Foreman hitting a heavy bag. And the shit is denting, breaking, like folding in half. And it's just like, you don't understand. You don't, you know, and I, I'm not saying I do either. I'm just saying, you don't, you don't know what it's like to get hit with somebody who would do that to a fucking object like that. Are you kidding? No. Fuck. <laughs> and, Holy, and Holyfield, and Holyfield said that, that even if you watch the end of their fight, the last like minute and a half, all Holyfield's doing is holding. He's just like, <laughs> I just don't want to get hit, hit by that anymore. 
he was really open about it. I was kind of shocked because normally he has a lot of pride and bravado about some of that stuff. But he was just kind of like, I've just never say like, every time he hit me, it was like my finger in electrical outlet. It just it just doesn't it didn't feel right compared to anybody I've ever been hit by. And that was a pretty old, really lethargic George uh, Man. Who, who also took a huge amount of punishment from Holyfield. But yeah, that was a war. Uh, War, war, and nobody took George seriously going into that fight. That was one of the best-selling pay-per-views I think of all time as well, wasn't it? Was, it? Like one of the it most was, yeah, like surprisingly well-selling, made a ton of money, and that fuckhead yeah. Trump was involved with all of his bullshit. <laughs> Man, that's such a the war clause. God, that's such a fucking fiasco. Fucking idiot. Anyway. Well, dude, yeah. I appreciate you going through and, and watching these fights. They were fun, but it, it is, you know, you got to set aside some time to do it. And it's a lot of fun, dude. I appreciate it, man. Well, I mean, if only Bobby Ches had been in the mix at heavyweight at this time as well. Chappie. He was almost there. <laughs> the matinee idol. He's just a short, drunk drive away, you know? <laughs> He's always just a short drunk driver. Call an Uber, Bobby. Oh, Fuck. Jesus, Bobby. Why? All right, blame Bobby. Hashtag. Yeah, hashtag blame Bobby. Do it for us. Hey, Bryn, I appreciate it, dude. Um, everybody who Pleasure. you know, everybody who tunes in and listens in, we appreciate you because I know uh the evolution of podcasts and whatnot. A lot of people are going to video. So if you're still listening in, thank you so much. And whatever podcast platform you listen on. Please subscribe, leave a review. Those things are helpful. And if you do watch on YouTube, thank you so much. Subscribe, also comment, etc. cetera. Uh, if you are on social media, the Knuckles and Gloves podcast is on Facebook and Instagram. However, for the time being, as it's still working, at least for now, somewhat, we're on Twitter. The Knuckles and Gloves podcast is there, but also individually. Like my boy Bryn is on Twitter as Bryn Isio, Bryn Jonathan Butler, B-R-I-N-I-C-I-O. B-R-I-N-C-I-O. Did I say I-C-I-O. Good God, what's wrong with me? B-R-I-N-I-C-I-O. Yeah, That's there we go. One. It, it, yeah, sometimes you get it. I'm also on there, Patrick Connors, Patrick M. Connor. So say hello, and Bryn, we'll talk soon, bro. You got it. This was fun. Talk to you soon. Later, buddy. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.